Welcome back to the fourth installment of the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast, a roughly 12-episode series about the great conspiracy theories of today and the not-too-distant past. A listener sent some complimentary email the other day, hoping the podcast might continue beyond 12 episodes. To that, I say, well, 12 isn't a hard and fast number. It's just my expert back-of-the-envelope guess as to how many podcasts it will take before I just start repeating myself. Also, given this podcast seems to have a natural period of every two weeks, you're looking at a good half year of podcasts. Slightly off topic, if you've not actually come to this podcast via the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, or you're not already a subscriber, let me heartily endorse this podcast and their drive to reach 30,000 listeners by the new year. I would seriously hate to think you're wasting time on my podcasts when you could first be tackling the Skeptic's Guide and their 100 plus back episodes. Skeptic's Guide could be found via iTunes. Just check the science podcasts. They're in the top 20 listings. All right. As my non-existent Scottish Rite Masonic grandfather would say, that's enough keen and On with the meat and oats. Pretty much anyone online with an unreasonably large student loan and an underpaid entry-level job has been talking up a video called Endgame by a talk radio show host called Alex Jones. Jones is a big proponent of the 9-11 conspiracy theory, but as promised, this podcast isn't going to go anywhere near that morass. Endgame fortunately doesn't much deal with 9-11, but with a topic Jones has been stomping the boards with for the last 10 years. A great overarching one-world government conspiracy. Endgame runs about 139 minutes, which is like way over two hours. Jones seems to think he's Peter Jackson or something. Anyway, this flick has a lot of flab. If you cut out the video of him running around Ottawa trying to get Canadians to take a loud American screaming about world domination seriously, you're pretty much left with your New World Order conspiracy I talked about in podcasts 1 and 2. Gosh, have I only got to podcast 4 and started repeating myself? Well, no. Jones adds a few elements I didn't cover in the first two podcasts, like global warming and vaccinations. But the meat and oats of Endgame is about a group called the Bilderbergs. What the hell is a Bilderberg? Well, it's not a sandwich made with pumpernickel. It's basically a private group of highly elite Americans, Canadians, and Europeans who meet off the record and discuss a wide range of topics. It's kind of like the Algonquin Roundtable, but with a membership whose collected net worth exceeds the GDP of any three African nations you care to name. These are people who call the people who call people flyover people flyover people. I'll give you a moment to parse that. We're talking basically European royalty, former UN ambassadors, American senators, and the heads of major global corporations. Bono would be so lucky to get an invite. Actually, the list of attendees rarely has a single famous name. You'd pretty much have to be an avid reader of the New York Times, the Financial Times, The Economist, and Newsweek to recognize even half the names of people who have attended a Bilderberg jamboree. Here, do these names ring a bell? Bernard Lord, Alfred Herrhausen, and Craig Mundy. Who? Eh, but I guess when these guys get together and talk smack about the world, Jones goes ballistic. So what did they talk about? Well, according to Jones, they meet at fancy hotels in Europe and North America and hatch their plans for world domination. Geez, can't they use MSN Messenger? The group got its name from the Hotel de Bilderberg, the first hotel they met at in the Netherlands in 1954. 
The group was begun by a Pole named Joseph Rettinger. Rettinger became concerned with the rise of anti-Americanism in Western Europe at the end of World War II. Being Polish, he was more than aware of what Europe would be like if it was dominated by the Soviets. Yeah, like they'll give you a fair shake. Rettinger was kind of unofficially adopted by a Polish count. This gave Rettinger some contacts among European royalty. He got a Dutch prince to sign on to his idea of an informal gathering of pro-American leaders, sitting down to discuss how to stem the tide of growing anti-Americanism. It's a given the Netherlands would sign on, a people who suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis, and to this day carefully school their children about the sacrifices Americans and Canadians made to free the Netherlands. And I have to remember, the people invited were professedly pro-American in a Europe that was quickly turning anti-American. You're not going to get many people from French labor unions to join your cause. Naturally, business leaders and people involved in the military-industrial complex are going to be pretty pro-American. Since the group was co-founded by European royalty, you're going to get a smattering of them, too. Now, anytime you get the heads of Europe, the USA, Canada, and business together, you've got a media circus on your hands and a lot of chances for these people to make sound bites to the press, instead of talking about what they're really thinking. So, naturally, you might want to do this behind closed doors. Let all these people let their hair down and be frank with each other without having to worry about the press misquoting them. Of course, if you assume the world is run by a shadowy group of elites, as Jones does, well, it's pretty easy to pour any old crazy conspiracy theory into this gap. For a meeting that's so darn secret, Jones sure does talk knowledgeably about what's going on behind these closed and gilded doors. Does Jones ever offer any evidence in Endgame of what's being discussed? No, of course not. Is there anything technically wrong with people freely associating? Just because you're the CEO of DuPont doesn't mean you have to abrogate your legal right to talk to any damn human you want in private. If you watch Endgame and see Jones with a bullhorn blasting at the dignitaries attending the Bilderberg meeting in Ottawa, shouting at them, we're not your slaves, is it any wonder people like Jones aren't invited? Anyway, despite the secrecy, there is one webpage, linked from the wiki page about Bilderbergs, that purports to have the minutes from their 1999 meeting. The webpage sort of touts these minutes as the final proof of... of what? If you actually read the minutes, and assume they're true, it's pretty dry stuff. People get up, give a little talks, and then people in attendance carry on an informal debate. There's a lot of dissent, in fact. And this is hardly a group of people marching lockstep like jackbooted Nazis towards one world government, as Endgame would have us believe with its lurid and frequent use of Nazi imagery. I mean, check this chilling revelation about what was talked about during a conference titled Eerily, The Relationship Between Information Technology and Economic Policy. I quote, and you might want to evacuate sensitive children from the room. <clears throat> Don't say I didn't warn you. Here we go. Governments have started computerizing tax collection, but they have not come to terms with how easy it will be to evade tax. Governments have started worrying about short-term changes in education, but they've not started asking themselves what schools are for. Terrified yet? And what about this freedom-crushing revelation during a section called the political scene in the United States? Don't let the children back in quite yet. Several participants seemed particularly depressed about the relative unpopularity of free trade in American politics. One Canadian participant pointed to the failure to get fast-track and the lack of American leadership at the WTO. An American thought that something was missing from the debate. With low employment and rising wages, surely it would be easy to prove the arguments for free trade. God, no! Now, if this document is representative of what goes on behind closed doors at a Bilderberg conference, 
I think we should all be thankful none of us are invited. But you know, Akrena Jones are talking about eugenics, how to transform Europe and America into a land of serfs, and how to depopulate Africa via plagues. Now, if you look at a list of Bilderberg attendees, it seems to me if you're looking for a crackerjack cabal of people to plan genocide, you don't invite Robert Stanfield, a former premier of Nova Scotia and a guy who blew his chance at being prime minister of Canada because he didn't know how to hold a damn football. I mean, what the hell? Since Jones has no source on what's actually being discussed at the meetings, or if he does and it doesn't jibe with what he knows is really being discussed, he has to infer by cherry-picking what various Bilderberg participants have said in times past. Most of his quote mining is reserved for David Rockefeller. Rockefeller is a globalist. Rockefeller believes in breaking down barriers between nations. It's pretty clear when we remove restrictions on the free flow of people and capital that we increase trade. As a Canadian, I've witnessed very tangible, positive benefits from both the initial Canadian-American Free Trade Agreement and the later NAFTA Agreement. The NAFTA Agreement resulted in the ability for Canadian professionals to work in the USA, mostly under the very easy-to-get TN visa. Back in the 1990s, when Canada's income tax rate was incredibly high, there was a huge drain of Canadians with skills to the USA. Skilled people were leaving Canada because Canadian taxes were just too damn high. They made no secret about that. The Canadian government had to respond by lowering taxes across the board. We all benefited. Now, sure, if you start from the standpoint that breaking down barriers is one world government and the end game of one world government is not free trade and prosperity but serfdom, you can cherry-pick quotes and make it look real scary-like. And hell, if one source doesn't say anything scary about, say, eugenics, then find another source and then just claim the second source is connected to the first source. Like the World Life Foundation is in cahoots with DuPont. For example, Jones claims another group called the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, has the stated mission to eliminate all nation-states in favor of a powerful world government administered by a tiny elite. Oh, scary. But let's look at the CFR's mission. The Council's mission is promoting understanding of foreign policy and America's role in the world. Meetings are convened at which government officials, global leaders, and prominent members debate major foreign policy issues. Those rat bastards. One gets a sense that if Jones was ever invited to one of these meetings, after the free donuts were gone, Jones would be bored spitless. Now, a few people who are globalists, like CNN's Ted Turner, subscribe to the belief that the world is vastly overpopulated. So they believe the ideal world population is 500 million people. I personally don't think so. I think I read that if we were all perfectly happy to live like Japanese in Tokyo, the current world population could be contained in Texas. That probably wouldn't please Jones, but regardless. One can hold the belief that we need to reduce the world population and not believe we need to get there via mass murder. Oh yeah, and Jones warns us we're now in the final stage of their nefarious plan. This somewhat reminds me of UFO nuts who always claim we're just on the verge of some major announcement. Or perpetual motion energy scammers who claim they're just on the verge of commercializing their technology. This claim crops up every year for the last, oh, 50 years. So, if you watch the half-dozen videos on this topic Jones has released over the last decade, I would bet he's probably made that claim in each video. There, I'm making a testable hypothesis. Endgame also goes into a bit of history. Well, in 140 minutes, a lot of history. It would appear one world government has been in the planning stages for the last couple hundred years. I mean, what's taking them so long? It sure seems if you want to make people into serfs, it's 
better to do it when they're still largely serfs, not software engineers, airline pilots, doctors, university professors, journalists, accountants, you know? Anyway, we're told an eerie story about how the London branch of the Rothschilds financed the UK against Napoleon. The Rothschilds are always used as a code for Jewish banker conspiracy, for those that don't want to come right out and seem like lame-ass anti-Semites. A small bit of history about Jews and banking. Back in the Middle Ages, Jews were not allowed to enter many professions. One of the few things they were allowed to do was make loans because Christians were not supposed to be charging other Christians interest on loans. So as nation-states became more important and needed sources of financing, of course, many Jews had the skills and talents to be bankers. Anyway, Jones tells us the Rothschilds had their informants watching the Battle of Waterloo. Nelson won and the Rothschild informants got their info to the Rothschilds first. The Rothschilds knew which way the stock market would turn upon announcement of victory. They bought up all the shares they could get. When the news hit, the Rothschilds were vastly, vastly rich. All because of their wormy spies. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. The Rothschilds were smart and understood that information was key to making good business decisions. They used messenger pigeons to get their news before anyone else. Endgame also tells us World War I was started by the Rothschilds. See, while we all believed it was started by some Serbian nutjob assassinating the Archduke Ferdinand, it turns out the hit was conducted by a Serbian secret society with connections to British and French intelligence. Okay, I'm not sure what the Rothschild connection was, and, and don't expect Jones to actually footnote this claim with a source. But hey, even if it were true, the Austro-Hungarian Empire wasn't exactly an ally of France and Britain. Of course you'd have intelligence contacts with anyone who could conduct attacks behind the lines if it ever came to war. Jones also claims the forerunner to the UN, the League of Nations, was a British creation. Now, it sure seems to me the League of Nations idea was one of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, not a British idea. In fact, it's a little hard to believe the Brits would want to dilute their considerable control over the world with an organization that might give others a say in how things are being run. Next up in Jones's little 15-minute tour of how the vast elite conspiracy has been operating is something called the business plot. Back during the Great Depression, Roosevelt was seriously screwing up the American economy. Many people think Roosevelt was America's great savior out of the Great Depression, but pretty much every time the American economy started to recover, naturally, Roosevelt instituted some new interventionist policy that screwed it all up. For a great story about the Roosevelt government, check out the book of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. The Roosevelt government actually jailed butchers in New York for daring to sell chickens for the lowest price. Anyway, according to Jones, the robber barons at the time were ready to overthrow the government in a military coup because they were upset the way Roosevelt was screwing things up. But was there really such a plot? Well, there was a congressional investigation. During the Great Depression, World War I vets weren't getting the money the government promised them. Wall Street bond salesmen approached a very popular Marine general named Smedley Butler to lead a military coup. Butler was a highly decorated soldier and an upstanding Quaker, and during the Great Depression was going to bat for the World War I veterans that served under him to get their benefits. Anyway, the bond salesman approached Butler and claimed he was working for the DuPonts and a cabal of American corporations, and they were ready to back a military coup. Butler, being an upstanding soldier, immediately reported the coup to the authorities, and a congressional investigation was launched. Now, it seems kind of weird the elitist cabal would be so foolish as to go to an upstanding soldier who's going to turn them in ASAP. But didn't they do their research? 
it sure would have been easy to find another guide to lead to disaffected World War I vets. And the congressional investigation sure didn't seem to unearth a nest of elites. It really just appears like you've got this bond salesman guy who is operating on his own. Ah, I'll tell Smedley I got moneyed elites backing me. And then once I get him on board, I can really go to the moneyed elites and sell them my coup idea. I mean, it could have worked that way too. Jones moves on to the connection between the British royal family and the Nazis. In Endgame, he claims Edward VIII was forced to abdicate because of his public support for Hitler. Well, it sure seems to me history records this abdication because he wanted to marry a divorced American woman. So, after this little history detour, Jones gets back on his attack on the Bilderbergs. We're told that until the 1980s, the media steadfastly denied of the group's existence. Of course, Jones supplies no source. Anyone coming to this video with at least an open mind, one grounded in good scholarship, is going to notice Jones tossing out claim after claim without ever supporting it. Worse, there's not a single dissenting voice in this whole flick. Jones, a media guy, should at least be aware of the token skeptic bit, so you can claim you were fair and balanced. Nope, nada. This is a video solely for those who have already drunk his Kool-Aid, or a similar brand. At the 36 minute mark, Jones claims Americans who attend Bilderberg meetings are in violation of the Logan Act. Jones incites what one thinks is a quote from the Logan Act, but is not, in fact, a reading of the Act. It's merely Jones's interpretation. Jones claims that any member of the government who meets with a foreign official is committing a felony. Really? No. Here's the text of the Logan Act. Private correspondence with foreign governments. Any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who without authority of the United States, directly or indirectly, commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with any foreign government or any officer or agent thereof, with intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or any officer or agent thereof in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States or to defeat the measures of the United States shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. Let me highlight part of this in relation to any disputes or controversies. Here's a tip off what the act is about and you have to read its history. The act was passed in 1798 in direct response to the actions of a state legislature who was unilaterally trying to negotiate peace terms with France during a little mini-war called the Quasi-War. The act was used only once in 1803. It's, it's never been used since. It's never even faced a court challenge, and many constitutional experts don't think it would stand up against a court challenge. Anyway, Jones and his followers online seem to make a big deal about this act as if it's some cornerstone of American law like the Sherman Antitrust Act. But let me read what the State Department had to say about the Logan Act when two U.S. Senators visited Cuba in 1975. Quote, the clear intent of this provision is to prohibit unauthorized persons from intervening in disputes between the United States and foreign governments. Nothing in Section 953, the, the Logan Act, however, would appear to restrict members of the Congress from engaging in discussions with foreign officials in pursuance of their legislative duties under the Constitution. So Jones, I'm afraid, is talking completely out of his ass. Business and political leaders all getting together to talk about how to make America more secure and richer sure doesn't seem to be in violation of the Logan Act. The last time I checked, America was in no disputes with any foreign government about what those foreign governments could do to make Americans all richer. After this, Jones moves on to his current scare project, the North American Union. Jones claims the North American Union was born after a meeting between Bush and the leaders of Canada and Mexico at Baylor University. 
Baylor University is a rather high-profile Baptist university. Now, Jones touts his Christian beliefs at times in Endgame, so it's odd that a major Baptist institution would be playing host of the New World Order. The North American Union, Jones claims, is about a merger with no input from the people. Now, unless the political systems in the USA and Canada have radically changed in about the last five minutes, it seems to me treaties need to be ratified by the legislatures. And if you recall, NAFTA was a significant part of the 1992 election debate. The, these things would not escape the, the voting public. Jones then whips up some anti-foreigner sentiment by claiming non-citizens are being recruited by the army and police force to suppress American citizens. Now, it's technically true non-citizens can join the army and, and probably many police forces, but these aren't exactly foreigners shipped in to crush dissent. These are called green card holders. You don't get an American green card unless you've lived a good hunk of your life in America. Seems to me a lot of non-citizens have given their life in Iraq and Afghanistan. Geez, thanks Joan for slighting their sacrifice. So what the hell is the North American Union? Well, more accurately, it's the Independent Task Force on North America. A think project by business leaders in Canada, the USA, and Mexico to build on NAFTA and move towards a European Union. Jones finds private citizens planning these kinds of things uber scary and anti-democratic. However, he fails to realize a lot of the laws passed by Congress are cooked up by private groups. Someone has to come up with the idea for a law. Lawmakers aren't actually the ones sitting around going, hey, what new laws can we write? Private interests even supply the congressmen they want to introduce the bill with sample legislation that may well form the basis for actual law. Do a Google search sometime on sample legislation and check out what groups are writing what potential laws. And yeah, you and I are not invited to the hog farmers of America meetings where they're trying to cook up a new law that might loosen regulation on pig slaughtering or whatever. So, crap, sorry that people who cross borders a lot and like to do business across borders more or less see those borders as impediments to their business and their lives. Within the context of the North American Union is a Canadian-American-Mexican proposal called the Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America, or SPP. The plan was launched by Bush, Paul Martin, and Vincente Fox in 2005. Jones and his followers seem to make a big thing about this plan being hatched in secret, and when smoked out, they have some show summit in 2007. Now, oddly enough, this plan is so secret, the White House has press releases about it from 2005, and the SPP has its own website that's been in existence since 2005. Of course, one might claim they simply created the page in 2007 and backdated everything. But then if you do a search on the Earl in the Wayback Machine, one not unsurprisingly finds the page was archived by the Wayback Machine in 2005. Anyway, it's all a little disingenuous when conspiracy nuts claim that things being done in public are more proof of the secret of nature. It's so secret they need to have some public cover story. So. According to Jones, the North American Union is going to result in a flood of foreign goods into the USA. Oh, like that's not happening now? And wait, those goods are going to be Mexican and Canadian. When Jones was up in Canada trying to convince Canadians they were going to lose their sovereignty, was he also warning them this nefarious plan would result in a huge surge of Canadian exports to the USA? No, he kind of kept that secret from them. And how all these foreign goods flow into the USA? Well, it's via something called the NAFTA Superhighway Control Grid. Well, that's what Jones calls it. 
It's a plan for a truck toll road that will go from Mexico through the center of the USA, hooking up through Detroit, and then feed into Canada's 401 highway via Windsor, Ontario, which happens to be the hometown of yours truly. Go Windsor Horned Warriors, the blue and teal forever! Sorry. Anyway, we all like roads. Nothing much wrong with that. And if it will keep truck traffic off the highway we use, hey, even better. Jones, however, needs to make it sound more ominous. See, it's a toll road. They'll photograph your license plate. Big Brother. The government will track you. Geez, doesn't Jones use a cell phone? Aren't we tracked a dozen different ways already and don't give it a single thought? Cell phone use, ATM use, using easy pass type cards for toll roads or the subway, using our credit cards, using point cards for groceries. Hello? Guess what? In modern society, you give up little slices of privacy for convenience. If you don't like it, just pay cash for everything. Stay off the toll roads. Also, to make the superhighway idea more scary, we're told a Spanish company has won the contract to run it. Um, and this is a problem how? The lowest bidder is a European company, familiar with the language of the workers who are going to end up pouring the asphalt. Jones also rambles about something called the Kansas City Inland Port, where, in over-the-top language, Jones claims Asian cargo is dumped on American shores and travels to a logistics center in Kansas City. This port is, according to Jones, sovereign soil of Mexico. Jeez, really? Well, no. The port has a Mexican customs facility staffed by Mexican customs officials who pre-clear American cargo bound for Mexico. Anyone who's ever flown from Toronto to the USA would recognize the utility here. Toronto's Pearson Airport has American customs right in the Canadian airport. You're pre-cleared in Toronto and don't have to pass through customs at your American destination. Saves getting to, say, Dallas and finding you can't enter the USA to conduct business at a client site. Jones also repeats an often told legend that the American interstate highway system was, to use Jones's words again, designed by Pentagon war planners. Now, Eisenhower supported the creation of the highway system, partly out of his frustration as a soldier at the beginning of his career, trying to get across America in an army truck. But the whole system was a massive partnership between the federal government and the state governments. It was hardly the product of the Pentagon. As in the Logan Act, Jones also seems to invent whole new passages and laws. Jones claims Section 802 of H.R. 3162, a.k.a. the Patriot Act, defines misdemeanors as terrorism. Well, no, the section reads, The term domestic terrorism means activities that a. involve acts dangerous to human life that are in violation of criminal laws of the United States or any state, b. appear to be intended 1. To intimidate or coerce a civilian population. 2. To influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. Or 3. To affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. And C. Occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Now, now what's important here is, to be a domestic terrorist, you have to violate A, B, and C. If you just violate A, that, that is, uh, an act dangerous to human life, that's not domestic terrorism. You need the B component, the intimidation, the mass destruction, the kidnapping, the assassination. All right? At about the 79-minute mark, we're told the regular army was searching people at the 2006 Super Bowl. However, the article Jones shows in Endgame clearly indicates it was the National Guard. That's not quite the regular army now, is it? 
The National Guard can certainly be called in by a state government to assist in security. During a disaster, the National Guard sure seems to provide police-like duties. Is that scary? Jones turns his eye to China and notes China is a globalist laboratory. For example, the CIA back Mao during World War II. The CIA didn't actually exist in World War II. That's one problem with that claim. And surely during World War II, the intelligence services would back anyone opposing Japan. Hello, they supplied the Soviets against the Germans. We're also told China's one-child policy was adopted after lobbying by a consortium of eugenics organizations like Planned Parenthood. Geez, really? Planned Parenthood? Jones, could you, um, like, footnote that or something? Seems really hard to imagine the Chinese just letting some unshaven hippie women walk in teaching them about how to abort babies. And, and as a eugenics policy, it sure seems kind of, um, not very eugenics-y. It's only about having one child, not nothing about the fitness of that child. Eugenics is about trying to improve the genetic stock. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing that's a good thing, morally. I'm just saying that's what eugenics is about. I'm not sure how simply allowing only one child is some kind of eugenics initiative. Of course, if Jones is getting into eugenics, you know faster than you can say gene duplication. Gene duplication. Gene duplication. Jones is going to take a swipe at evolution. He doesn't fail to disappoint. He incorrectly attributes survival of the fittest to Darwin. The phrase was actually coined by British economist Herbert Spencer. Darwin used the term natural selection. It's what we use today. And remember, in evolution, fitness has nothing to do with what we think of physical fitness. For example, I can lift more weight and run faster than the 300-pound guy down the hall everyone calls Weird Frank. But Weird Frank has had two kids. I've had no kids. He is, by definition, more fit than I. More of his genes are currently in the population than mine. So when you talk about evolutionary fitness, it's got nothing to do with ideas of human perfection. And one should note that eugenics and evolution certainly do not go hand in hand. For example, the Scopes Monkey Trial famously had evolution removed from textbooks because they rather offended Tennessee Christian sensibilities. However, the state's textbook commission rather happily approved biology textbooks with eugenics materials for years after the trial. Why didn't Christians protest the eugenics material? Jones claims IBM founder Thomas J. Watson was a follower of Hitler. Okay, well, IBM helped set up a census tabulator for Nazi Germany, and Hitler awarded Watson with a medal. But Watson sent the medal back at the start of World War II. Anyway, Jones notes computers were used for Hitler's race studies. Geez, I, I bet you hammers were used to build death camps. Damn you Ace Hardware for selling a tool of genocide. We're also told Bertrand Russell was eugenicist. Here, let me quote Russell, the uh, eugenicist. Quote, it is sometimes maintained that racial mixture is biologically undesirable. There is no evidence whatever for this view nor is there apparently any reason to think that Negroes are congenitally less intelligent than white people." Unquote. So suck it, Jones. Next, Jones lays on us the amazing stat that 20% of the U.S. population is on antidepressants. That's like more than one out of four. According to the LA Times, 9.5% of the population suffers from a depressive disorder, and only half of them seek medical treatment. So where's Jones getting this 27% figure? I can't find it. But this is his wedge into the idea that Big Pharma is also out to get us, along with IBM, the government, the Mexicans, Charles Darwin, and Planned Parenthood. See, according to Jones, United Nations Environment Program's Global Biodiversity Assessment Report 
has called for the reduction of the human population to 1 billion people. Now, a Google search of the UNEP site turns up no document that makes this claim. Um, could we get another source there, Jonesy? According to Jones, the way this winnowing down of the human population will be achieved is using race-specific bioweapons. Jones claims South Africa developed them during, I guess, the apartheid era. Now, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission certainly uncovered that the white South African government was working on such weapons under uh, Wouter Basson, but there is no evidence any such weapon was developed or was even realistic back in the 1980s. Jones notes Dick Cheney calls race-specific bioweapons, quote, a politically useful tool. Sounds chilling and ominous, but the quote is from a report called Strategy for Transforming Conventional Forces, which is just a think piece about the future of warfare, not the future of the American military necessarily. Nations may develop such weapons and won't just use them for terrorism, but may view them as politically useful tools. Like North Korea currently finds the threat of making a bomb a politically useful tool. Jones also gets a bit into the vaccination conspiracy. You know, they're putting things in vaccines to make people sterile, or vaccines will give your kids autism. Lots of good skeptical blogs deal with the vaccine fear-mongering crowd, and a quick Google will turn up why this is full of crap. And if vaccines aren't going to get you, then Jones warns us genetically modified foods will. That's part of the plot, too, I guess. Now, here's the boner. The EU, the source of all of Jones's evil, is totally against GMO crops. How does Jones square this? Of course he doesn't. Why should he? Endgame is just 139 minutes of throwing mud, buckets and trailers full of mud, hoping some will stick. But man, pass me a wet nap, because about one grain of dirt manages to stick.